This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com slash science, try Audible for free for 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com slash science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, do-it-yourself electric cars and social context in space. But first up, here's the news. Fruit flies rolled by magnets. Researchers from Cornell University wanted to see how fruit flies are able to stabilise their flight when tiny gusts of wind would roll them over in mid-air. So they glued miniature magnets to their backs. Fruit flies are very light, so it takes a very little bit of wind to roll them around. How do they manoeuvre so well? They glued a 1.5mm magnetic pin to the back of the fruit flies, like a rod across their shoulders, and had them fly through big electromagnetic loops so they could flip them on demand. When the magnet flips the pin, the fruit fly is flipped as well, and then the fly has to recover from its roll. The magnetic pulse was timed to last 5 milliseconds, which is one fruit fly wing beat. The chamber had three high-speed cameras filming at 8,000 frames per second, one camera for each direction. Using the images, Software reconstructed the way the fly moved its wings in space to stabilise itself in the air after being flipped. The researchers found that the fly started correcting its movement within 5 milliseconds of being flipped. This is one of the fastest reactions ever seen in animals. It's twice as fast as the escape response of cockroaches. The fruit fly regained control by flapping its wings at unequal angles, while also stretching out its legs to produce a corrective turning force. 5 milliseconds is faster than the time it takes for the fly to react to something it can see, which means it's not using its eyes to fix its flight. By the time the fly can see what's happening, it's already recovered from being flipped by an invisible magnetic field pushing on a magnet glued to its back. The paper was titled Roll Control in Fruit Flies and was published on the scientific paper preprint archive arxiv.org in the Biological Physics section. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the community radio network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. 
www.leadershipconsultancy.com. And now leadership and social context, the final frontier. Ian Sharp works internationally with a range of major organisations to build their executive leadership capability and high-performing teams. He's worked as a program, project and portfolio manager for over 18 years, managing major business transformation initiatives and leading people out of tight places and into better places. He spoke at the OrbitOz Space Entrepreneur Meetup about how he's advised NASA on leadership, team building and how the social context of workplaces drives the behaviours that can cause the big problems and what to do about them. Probably the number one question I get asked all the time is, how do you get to go and work with NASA? And I say, well, first of all, let me say say the word incredibly times 10, staple the word lucky on the end, and you've got the sensation of it. But the reality of it is how it started was just good manners. In 2010, I had made the acquaintance of Dr. Charlie Pellerin, NASA's former director of astrophysics. Um, he was over here for a conference in Brisbane, hooked up with Charlie, he was talking about high-performing leaders and teams, this was a shared passion. So it was very easy for us to start a conversation, he just launched his book How NASA Builds Teams, had the great good luck to get a copy of this, and pretty much evangelised from that point onwards to lifelong interest in uh, space exploration, and people came together in the perfect fusion. Arising from that work, UXC Consulting got Charlie over here to work with us and with our major clients in 2012, and towards the end of 2012, Charlie had a major workshop at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, one of the 10 NASA delivery centres, and said, hey, Sharpie, do you want to come across and work with me? I need a second chair for this workshop for the Office of Safety and Mission Success at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I said, yeah, love to. Who wouldn't? The science aspect from from your perspective is also, as well as the people you work with, it's the psychology and the behaviour of people in social context. Yeah, that's right. I guess one of the things I'd say, Ian, is that it's more neurological than it is psychological because, first, isn't it true that we are a social species? It's in the nature of our species. And if you ignore that in the workplace, any kind of workplace, industrial, commercial, public, scientific, you're going to hit a rock at some point, and usually a pretty fatal one. So... What the work is about is understanding that responding to social context is quite normal and natural for every person on this planet. It's in our nature, and working with that is really just acknowledging that how others act around us becomes the way we do things around here, which drives the way we do things around here. It becomes normal and natural, and if that context that you're in is broken, behaviours will feel okay, but actually be broken and often lead to broken results. The Challenger was a good example of it. Columbia, another. Mars Polar Lander, another example. In fact, the history is replete. Pretty much pick any major you know, humanitarian disaster and like Fukushima Daiichi reactor, look at the failure review board's conclusions. They always point to sociological elements, not just technical elements being the root cause. And this was interesting to me because technical people tend to see technical root causes and that's fine, but it's not the real problem. And we need to dig deeper than that on, and to do so, we also need a way to diagnose if the context we're in is actually broken or unhealthy in some way. 
And in the case of the Challenger disaster, I know a lot of the way it was reported in the press, particularly with high-profile Richard Feynman, their finding that the O-rings broke when they were frozen. It was all presented as a technical problem, but that wasn't the whole story. Yeah, that's exactly right. Diane Vaughan's book, The Challenger Launch Decision, gives her finding when she was a member of that panel, the co- part of the congressional hearing, and uh, let me be clear, nobody is listening during a hearing. They should be realistically called beatings, and, and quite rightly, you don't merit that level of attention without something very severely wrong going on. Um, Diane Vaughan explained it really nicely. She, in fact, the congr- she was the one who asked the right question and steered the panel to the right uh, outcome. And the question she asked was, she wanted to know why it was, despite initial written advice, that NASA still proceeded to launch. NASA had put pressure upon the uh, Morton Thiokol, the manufacturers of the booster, to change their position in terms of what they'd warned NASA about the O-rings. And the reality of it was nobody ever believed that it was just a case of, oh, we'll just wait a couple of hours and then we'll launch. Nobody in their right mind, least of all NASA, would have proceeded under what they genuinely believed to be a risk condition for launch. Ever. And yet they did. And the rationale for this is stranger than we might think, because these are some of the best technical minds on the planet, you know, in Mission Control and at Morton Thiokol. What on earth could have justified this? Well, the reality is it became increasingly harder over the years to justify not to launch. Now, that's a real role reversal from how it used to be in the very early days of NASA. And the reasons for this fundamentally are quite interesting. The short answer is that over time behaviours that have been perfectly okay warped because of various pressures to deliver, pressure to launch, where the perspective on risk, the considerations given to it, while reasonable, were not sufficient. And I'd encourage anybody who's got a real interest in exactly what happened to go read the book. So it's a shift in the way people are thinking, and it's also a shift in the way people are guided to thinking, I guess, by the people who are managing them as well. So it's a whole social change within the within the workplace. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, it's actually a shift in the way people are acting. I mean, thinking is part of the acting, ideally, but um, nobody ever believed when they woke up that morning and went into launch operations that they were going to kill seven people. Nobody ever believed when Columbia was going to be re-entering that they were going to kill seven people. Nobody ever believed of Fukushima Daiichi reactor that the delays that were going on incessantly within the program to decommission the reactors were going to end up with the nuclear incident that has occurred. People don't get out of bed bed in the morning and think, I'm really going to stuff up today. And yet, conditions for that occurring have occurred because of a comfort with the way we do things around here. Nobody stood up and said, in any of these cases, damn it, stop. There was one engineer at Morton Thiokol who had persisted with his claim that it was dangerous to launch. And for the rest of that story, go read the book. What went wrong at Fukushima? 
Well, at Fukushima Daiichi, let me be clear, when I'm saying what went wrong, I'm talking about the social context, not the earthquake, not the subsequent tsunami, not the failure of the containment procedures, but even several years previously. The Japanese government's failure review board credits a uh, insularity, a sticking with the program, no matter what a uh, tendency to operate in silos. This drove operational uh, inefficiencies, which meant that the reactor was were two years beyond when they should have been decommissioned. You also must understand that the Japanese government and the Japanese people have a high reliance on energy, um, and particularly on nuclear energy. There are no uh, hydrodynamic sources of energy really available to them very easily. And... Uh, Consequently, that means that there's a natural tendency to delay or slow changing over from one energy source to another in this context. There's certainly nobody in the Japanese government nor the uh, team that was decommissioning the reactors thought that the, it was even dreamed of the potential that they may have a nuclear incident. These are smart, capable people. Homer Simpsons d- do not work at nuclear reactors in reality. Given that it's a social context and a slow shift to trying to be more productive in a way, to get things done, to get the result out there, what's the change that can be made with the hindsight of what's going wrong to change the social context? I think detection, it's like anything scientific, you have to detect what's really going on, what's the real state first. The easiest way to do this when you're working with a team is Dr. Charlie Pellerin, again, had created a very simple online uh, detection mechanism. This is uh, an assessment process which allows the members of the team not to rate each other but to say against eight objective behaviours such as making and keeping agreements, um, plain English, things that everybody can relate to. You don't need to be an organisational psychologist to detect these. And the team members are rating how well do we do each of these eight in this team? Not how well does Ian do it? How well does Jock do it? Yeah. How do, well does Hinoshi do it? But how well do we really do this? What's the reality of how we work around here? And there has to be a standard against each of the behaviours to remove a lot of the subjectivity. Otherwise, it's just, yeah, I feel it's okay. Anything objective that is to be measured must have a standard. And this gives you leading indicators. The second thing that really helps is when it's online and anonymous, when you provide an opportunity for comment, people usually comment. And for each of the areas, plus what needs to be improved with the team overall as a catch-all, we find that this is a very good source for action items. People tend to say what's really going on and what they're happy about and certainly what they're not happy about. This gives you some fast actionable data to now work as a team and say, where are we okay and where do we collectively feel we've got some problems? Now, there's another thing... It's not only online and anonymous, you never see anybody else's responses until the very end. And that's at the report process, so by the time you've seen the report, you cannot go back and change your answers. So there is no group think. It also avoids the observer effect, as famously found out through the Hawthorne factory on performance improvement. Most psychologists will know that if you decide that you're going to observe somebody to see if they improve, a miracle will occur. They will usually improve. 
So we look for the truth of the participant's experience on what they have already seen. Now that does mean you are viewing a little bit of the past, but it's much more accurate in what you end up seeing. That tells you where on the curve you are as a team. Do you need to take action? Are you okay? Is it going to be a calibration or a sit down with a major piece of truth revelation and how we need to fix this? For people wanting to get better to grips with putting together productive teams and making their existing teams work better and avoid these social context disasters, what do you recommend they do? Very simple. Go try it. Go to www.4-d, as in Duncan, systems.com, and you can go and try it. Set up a dashboard. Go diagnose your team. It doesn't take very long. If you're doing it for your own team, it does not cost you anything. But the cost of non-conformance may be very high. Just because you're comfortable in the team context where you are now, so was everybody at Mission Control. Is there anything you'd like to add? The only thing I'd like to add is from my personal experience. And using this, you can use this as a leader yourself, not just for teams, getting people you nominate to be reviewers for you. This can be really powerful. It takes some courage to ask others, again, they're responding online and anonymously, what the truth of their experience is. But you know, if you get 15 or 20 people come back to you and they're saying the same thing, again, separately and independently about you, you can either say you've been so clever that you fooled everybody, or maybe there's something you're doing that's consistent, that's very effective for them, or possibly not so effective. I think the first step in any effective leadership is to actually examine your own leadership and challenge that and find out the truth of how others experience it. Because Ian, do you know what you're doing when you're a leader and you've got nobody following you? What are you doing? You're just going for a walk. Well, on that note, Ian Sharp, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Ian. A pleasure. That was Ian Sharp talking about how social context drives behaviours for efficiency and sometimes to disaster. His advice works for anyone working with other people. Ian is a National Director of the Australian Institute of Project Management. You can find them at www.aipm.com. Next up, do-it-yourself electric cars. The Sydney Mini Maker Fair was on this last weekend of the 16th and 17th of August. I spent both days wandering around talking with all the makers. Mark Taylor is the secretary of the Sydney branch of the Australian Electric Vehicle Association. And he was there with several cars that have been fitted by members with electric motors and batteries. I began by asking him what the Australian Electric Vehicle Association was all about. We just convert old cars to electric. Our association's been running continuously since 1974. It's a nationwide association with branches in each state. Got four cars here today. A very enthusiastic bunch of guys who just love working on cars from a diverse field of backgrounds, from electricians to electrical engineers to computer geeks to just people who just love tinkering with cars to people who uh, care about the environment. And how hard is it to modify a car to work just off electricity? Um, it's not that difficult if you're mechanically minded. Um, you just pull out the motor and all the petrol 
you know, auxiliary parts, so the, the fuel tank and the exhaust system and the radiator and things, just replace it with a big electric motor and a lot of batteries and a controller to go between the two of them. It's fairly simple, really, when you look at it. Is it expensive to do? Can be. Batteries can get fairly expensive if you want to go long distance. My little Suzuki van, which I've got sitting behind me, I originally converted it with lead-acid batteries. Cost about $10,000 for the car all up, but since then I've probably spent about the same amount on the new lithium-ion batteries, but it's turned it into an absolutely totally different car. So when it's a different car, what's the difference that you get from switching to lead-acid to lithium batteries? Uh, weight. Weight was the main difference. When I originally had lead batteries in here, I could only have one passenger, but now with lithium batteries, because it's so light, I can have you know, the back seat back in there and carry three, three other people with me. The performance was massively improved with lead acid batteries. I was lucky to get 50 kilometres, but now I can get over 100 kilometres easy. And it's just a beautiful car to drive. And is it really quiet? Oh yeah, it's dead silent. Don't hear a thing. Especially when you come up to lights or something and you, and you stop, it's just silent. All you can hear is all these other cars around you sort of purring away, but no, it's, it's really good and it's really quiet on the road. No vibrations or anything. And how long do you have to go between recharging? Like I say, it'll, it'll do a 100k range, but that's if you're driving at 60 kilometres an hour. Um, I charge it up at night, might take four hours. You can do it off peak if you get, you get it wired up that way. But yeah, you normally park somewhere and if there's a PowerPoint handy, you plug in just to give you a bit more range. But yeah, that's what you normally do. And how much cheaper is it to run on electricity instead of petrol? Well, for the 100k driving, I might spend $2 recharging but I've spent a lot of money up front on the battery pack initially. So over the lifetime of the battery pack, like say four or five years, you do end up in front, but it's more than just a financial saving. It's, it's an environmental thing and it's just the fun of this group of people who just love converting cars. And have you looked into solar panels? Yes, um, you need a lot of solar panels to charge, to charge a car, but if you have solar panels on your house, there's no reason why you can't. I know, know people in Armidale and stuff who are just on solar, and that's what they charge their car off. And it does work, but it's, it's a bit hard. To, I've got a little van here. I could put solar panels on the roof, so when it's parked out in the sun, it gets a bit of something, but it has to be sitting there for quite a while to get me any decent sort of range. Yeah. And where's the association based? The main part of the association is in Melbourne. We have the National Committee is, is based all over, all over the Australia, so we try and sort of pick and choose, make sure there's someone from each state who's on the National Committee. But we're active in every state. Different states seem to do different things. The people in the ACT seem to be more like driving Nissan Leafs and iMeves and that sort of thing, while in Sydney we do a lot of conversions. In Perth they do a lot of conversions. And it's, it's a really good bunch of people. And we have a national AGM next month, so we'll be all going to Melbourne, I think, to um, meet and have a discussion about where the club's heading. And if people want to get involved, where should they start? And there's a website, aeva.asn.au, or we do regular meetings at Castle Hill for just the Sydney branch. And we also have a meeting every week somewhere at someone's workshop just to see how they're going with their project and just, and just get out, have a steak and talk about EVs. Can people actually buy electric cars off the shelf in Australia? You can now. There's a Nissan Leaf, there's the Mitsubishi iMove, uh, all the car companies seem to be slowly bringing the cars into the country, but there's no real incentive as far as the government or registration costs or anything like that for people to buy EVs. I think they make a really good second car for doing the shopping, picking the kids up from school, and that's how they should be marketed, as a second car. You've got your petrol car for doing long distance, but the EV is perfect for short distance. And that'll probably change as the batteries improve. 
Oh, most definitely, most definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. The charge stations, I guess. Like in America, there's a big thing from Tesla Motors to put charge stations all over. I think charge stations are a good idea if you've got the infrastructure and you've got the volume of cars on the road. At the moment, I charge up at home or I charge up at my destination because I know there's going to be charging available. If there's a charge station and you get there and someone's already using it, well, you're sort of stuck. So I think it's good if you're doing a consistent run all the time, like to work and back. Yeah, they're perfect for something like that. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Mark Taylor, Secretary of the Sydney branch of the Australian Electric Vehicle Association. You can find out more at www.aeva.asn.au. While at the Mini Maker Fair, I wore my Luxi wearable camera attached by elastic band to my glasses. So I took point of view video of me interviewing people. If you want to see the video of Mark Taylor talking about his electric cars, have a look at www.diffusionradio.com. Please excuse the head movements, but stick around to the end of the interview for a look inside his car. Eat your heart out, Google Glass. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and please review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. You support Diffusion by downloading the free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free audiobook of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast directly. I'm putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion on FundScience org.au that's f-u-n-d science.org.au it might take a few weeks before we go live i'd really appreciate hearing from you about the funder rewards you think i should offer and which people you'd like me to interview if i just had the funding i'm ian wolf join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on diffusion science radio it's raining raindrops all around the sunlight heats the water which rises in the air the higher up it travels the cooler it is there the droplets come together and form the clouds we see then all at once
once it's raining down on you and me. The water goes up and the water comes down, and we hear the raindrops all around. It's raining, it's raining, it's raining, raindrops all around. Now the sunlight heats the oceans and changes some of the water into vapor. Which then rises in the air, and the winds blow the water vapor over land and sea. And when the air is cooled, the water vapor changes to droplets, and the clouds are formed. The water goes up and the water comes down, and we hear the raindrops all around. It's raining, it's raining, it's raining, raindrops all around. Round.